Yeah, so Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in, in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Anna, thanks very much for reading. Why don't you allow me to pray for us before we, before we start? Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Father, we pray so much that you help us now to listen to your son and help us to hear his voice clearly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. But why did Jesus have to become man? God in the flesh, the humanity of Jesus. Well, it's one of the key distinctives of Christianity. 
Uh, Muslims and Jews, they balk at the idea of the idea of God coming in the flesh. Jehovah Witnesses, they reject the idea that Jesus stayed in the flesh at his resurrection. And so the thought that Jesus is both fully God and fully man is anathema. It's an abomination to many. Well, but the Bible is pretty clear. Uh, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. But why? Uh, why do he have to become man? You see, if God is almighty and all-powerful and omnipotent, he could just snap his fingers and he could just sort all the problems out. Why did he have to become man? That's a fair question. And one of the things that we've been seeing in the book of Hebrews is that the book of Hebrews, if you see it in the handout, is structured around the journey of Jesus. It's a journey from heaven down to earth as man, and then his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And another angle of asking this question is, why did Jesus have to embark on that journey? Why couldn't he just accomplish all that he needed to accomplish in heaven? So why? Why did Jesus have to take on flesh, being born in the manger, and become man? Well, the, the posh word to describe what we are thinking about today is the doctrine of Christology, uh, the study of the person of Jesus. But the problem with making things sound really posh is that immediately it sounds really distant with no relevance to our day-to-day. That's one for the Bible nerds to argue about. But to help us to see, I want to help us to see that this would be the most important thing that you'd be thinking about today. Uh, more important than your meeting with your boss later on in the afternoon, or perhaps a meeting with the CEO. Because this is the central issue of your faith, if you call yourself a Christian. Who is the person you follow? Who is the Christ of Christianity? Why did Jesus have to become man? Here is a health warning before we, we dive in. Uh, the book of Hebrews is really, really hard, Okay. It's really dense, it's highly complex, and we could dumb down what the author is saying, but we won't, uh, because for lunch, we don't want a plain sandwich, we want something meaty. So get ready to put in your thinking caps as we consider this topic today. And to grasp this issue, uh, we need to first grasp this really key tension in the biblical narrative, but we need to go very all the way back to the beginning. Uh, firstly, there was this word that was spoken in Genesis chapter 1, 1 verse 28, where God speaks to men and women and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything. Uh, that is God's purpose for humanity, men and women over all creation. And you go to our passage today, our author picks up that idea in verse 6 to 8, and there also he's quoting from Psalm, Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is reflecting on God's original design of humanity. Let me read it for you. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. See the point? Uh, that is God's original design for humanity. Everything in subjection to man. But here's the problem, because there is another word in the beginning. Uh, the second word in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. 
we saw in our overview of Genesis, in the day that you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Two words, a word of blessing and life, be fruitful and multiply, and then a word of warning and death. Genesis 2, 17, you shall surely die. And if you were here for the overview of Genesis, you saw that death was the outcome. As Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they died that very day. They died on an individual level, both physical and moral. But there was death also on a cosmic level. This whole world was thrown into disorder. Um, the world was in chaos. And again, the author reflects on the state of this world. Look to chapter 8, sorry, verse 8. Now, when putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside its control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. A him there refers to man. And so the author is saying that because of death and disorder, the world is not in subjection to man. And that's the key tension in the Bible. Two words of God, rule the world, versus if you eat of it, you shall surely die. The fruit is eaten, death happens. And the question is, is God's purpose, has it been thwarted? How will creation be restored? How will individuals have life? And the answer, it is Jesus, the man. Jesus, the man. Well, you're following the handout. We are there in point number one. It's Jesus, the man, who restores creation to glory. Let me read from verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see the, the point that the author is making. Uh, Jesus, he fits the, the quotation in Psalms 8 uh, like a glove. Uh, look at verse 7. Uh, you have made him, that's referring to man, mankind, for a little while lower than the angels. Look to verse 9. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Again, look at verse 7. You have crowned him that is mankind, with glory and honor. And then glance down to verse 9 again. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. You see the point that the author is making? Uh, we, all of us here in this room and also on a Zoom call, men and women, we are not ruling over creation. But Jesus the man is. You see, Jesus, he must be man to restore creation, because that was God's original design for humanity. And so we're getting this really clear in our heads. Jesus is still man today. Uh, on the 10th of March, 2022, he resurrects as man. He ascends to heaven as man. He sits at, at God's right hand as man. The name Jesus is the name that he inherits when he takes on flesh. And as long as he's called Jesus, he is still man, and he must be still man today, because only then does he truly restore God's original design for humanity. 
is Jesus the man who restores creation to glory. And also it has to be Jesus, uh, not just man, but also God. See, another way to see it that it can only be Jesus who is both fully God and fully man. Because only the creator can recreate and only man can restore mankind to its former glory. Therefore, only Jesus, both God and man, could restore creation. I think about when you are, you know, those kids, children, they have those toys where they try to fit a triangle-shaped block into a triangle-shaped hole, a square-shaped block into a square-shaped hole. Um, the point here is quite simple. Uh, it's a complex shape. Um, only the creator can recreate. Only man can restore creation to former glory. And therefore, only Jesus, who is both the creator and man, can restore all of creation. Well, that is perhaps a lot to chew on, but let's pause and reflect on what this looks like today. See, the author says in verse 8b, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, to man. And we think about the world today. We think about the rotting way of this earth. You think about the climate crisis. You think about what's going on in the news. And needless to say, wars being waged against each other. The world is in disorder. And so when we watch the news, we may feel a sense of hopelessness or a sense of loss. And we ask, how will this world be sorted out? The answer, it's the eternal son stepping into this world in a manger. And when Mary calls him Jesus, the name Jesus, which means God saves, he enacts a salvation not just for individuals, but a salvation for the restoration of the world. And so the tension that we, we talked about before is God's original purposes thwarted? How will creation be restored? Well, the answer is Jesus, the man, the man who restores creation. Well, but what about us? Jesus, he restores creation, and it's no good for him to be ruling alone. Where do we come in? And that's where we come to a second point. It's Jesus, the man who brings many sons to glory. Look to verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through, through suffering. Do you notice that his restoration of bringing the world to restoration is done in a way that takes many sons to glory. You see a diagram there on the handout. Jesus, he, he goes on a U-shaped journey from down to earth and back up again. But he does it in a way that he brings many sons and daughters to glory. Well, how does that happen? Uh, what is the mechanics of it happening? Well, I've been thinking about it this week, about how do people, I guess guys in particular, address their friends. And it's interesting that in different cultures, there are different um, habits of calling each other. You have dude or pal or buddy or mate. Uh, in Singapore, we uh, often use the word bro. Um, and uh, perhaps you might have heard me unconsciously calling you that. Uh, but you need to realize that the semantic range of the word bro can range from a really close, close friend to a stranger that you meet on Facebook market. Uh, you might go, hey bro, can you give me a lower price? So when we call a person bro, uh, it's not necessarily 
a strong expression of kinship. But it's not like Jesus. You see, when he calls his brothers, it is with real in intent and purposes. Now look at verse 11. For he who satisfies and those who are satisfied, those who are sanctified, all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Do you notice he brings many sons to glory by calling us brothers? But the quote there in verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of your congregation, I will sing your praise. And that is a quote from Psalm 22. And I guess, I'm guessing that most of us are more familiar with the first part of Psalm 22, which goes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the cry of Jesus on the cross. But you see what the author is doing? He is quoting from the latter half of Psalm 22. And the point that he's trying to make is that his cry on the cross is for the purpose of calling us brothers. He suffers so that he can call us brothers and sisters with real intent. See, Jesus, he is both man and the son. He can call us brothers so that we can call God our father. And that is how he brings many sons to glory. Uh, but it's not all. It's not simply because Jesus, he comes to us and he calls us brothers or sisters as if that's enough. Um, the author, he further develops his point. I look down to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Well, the author is saying that it's Jesus who shared in our flesh. He partook in the same things. He pooped in the nappy. He went through puberty. He grew up, experienced pain, suffering, temptation, and death all the experiences of man. And it's all for the purpose of dealing with death, the devil, and to bring us to glory. Pause and think, it's a totally astounding claim that the God of the universe would share in our flesh. Imagine if you have a rotting log in your back garden, full of maggots crawling all over. Then imagine degrading yourself becoming a maggot in order to help and save these maggots. It is just astounding. The God of the universe, taking on flesh, partaking of the same things, so that through death, he might destroy the one who has power over death. And because he shares in our flesh, he is able to help us Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Uh, the word help there is the same idea of taking hold of, the idea of taking hold by the hand to help. Um, over Christmas, I, I met a couple, a friend of mine from Germany, and they were sailing around Europe, two of them, with a two-year-old child. 
Um, and I guess what happens when you sail around Europe, um, at some point your boat gets stuck. And so they had to call the emergency services to come to help them. And there was this point where my friend was describing that he was standing on both boats and he was holding his daughter by the hand to swing her across to the emergency boat. And that's the picture that Jesus saves us. He takes us by the hand, he swings us across through death and into resurrection life. He helps us by taking hold of us into glory and all the way to the end. So he calls his brothers. He shares in our flesh. He takes us by the hand to bring us into life. But there's one more way that he helps. You see, even as he drags us to safety, you know, sometimes we can be kicking and screaming, not wanting to be dragged along. Uh, indeed, we are drawn to sin. We like the path of least resistance. But in the midst of our resistance and our kicking and screaming, he helps us. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You see, it's his fleshly experience um, that when we were kicking and screaming, he understands. He knows what it's like to turn back. Um, he knows what it's like to need help. And so he comes to our aid. He helps us by sharing in our suffering. It's worth flagging in those verses that the author, he brings up terms like a high priest and propitiation. And those are big terms and they form the core of the book of Hebrews. Uh, we won't tackle them now and we'll unpack them in later weeks. And so we see the second tension that we've seen so far. How will God cause men and women to be fruitful and multiply? How will individuals have life? Well, the answer is Jesus, the man. Not only does he restore creation to glory, he does it in a way which brings many sons and daughters to glory. And so he goes to us and says, Ben, my brother, or Karen, my sister, or Hitton, my brother or Margaret, my sister. Lift up your eyes, and you can now call God your father. You see, he takes hold of us by the hand to bring us into resurrection life. When we struggle and fail, and we are tempted to fall, he suffers with us to help us. And so this is why Jesus had to become man. There is no salvation apart from the historical incarnation, death, and resurrection. It's his humanity that restores creation. It's his humanity that brings many sons and daughters to glory. Here is uh, a quotation from one of the commentaries I was reading. Hebrews proclaims to us the astounding news that Jesus came down that he might raise us up. He became man that he might lead human beings to glory. He came down to this world that he might suffer for us and that he suffered for us that he might redeem us. He redeemed us that we may join him as a congregation of brothers who were together declare the praises of the Lord. Well, here are a few ways to chew on this as you head back to your office. On an apologetic level, 
God becoming man, it's a real offense to many people out there. But here is the response from the author of Hebrews. If Jesus was not fully man, creation would never be restored. Uh, he would not be able to help us in our weakness. Any other alternative would not solve this great problem. It's only when Jesus, the eternal son, became man. But of course, um, the author of Hebrews was not writing an apologetic. Uh, he didn't have Islam in mind when he was writing his letter. Uh, rather, the author, he wants to expand our minds of the person of Jesus, to expand our view of the great salvation that he has accomplished. You see, many of us, we started Christian life by saying the sinner's prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what Jesus has done is not only for me, but for the whole of creation. It is a great salvation. It is nothing less than dealing with the death and decay of the entire world. It is an inauguration of a whole new world, a whole new creation. It is accomplishing God's original purpose for the world. Be fruitful and multiply. It is bringing many sons to glory, to this glorious new creation. Do you understand how great the salvation Jesus has accomplished? And so as we head back, the key verse for us to think about is chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of a confession. Consider Jesus. See, the biggest need of the human heart is not to find three easy steps to reduce our stress or find five steps to make our marriages better. The biggest need of the human heart is to see Jesus Christ with the eyes of faith and to delight in him more. The greater he becomes first, the more everything else falls in place. And so have that song in your mind. If you know that song, the old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Consider Jesus, the one who enacts a great salvation, the author and perfecter of our faith. Well, Jesus has inaugurated a new creation, a whole new world awaits, a new Sabbath rest. And so the question for next week is, will you enter it? Will you enter God's rest? And if you want to find out the answer, you have to come back next week. Why don't I pray for us?